This UCSD-TV program is a presentation of University of California Television for educational and non-commercial use only. Yesterday, we heard of the death of Tony Curtis, uh, well known for his role in Some Like It Hot. And as you've seen from previous speakers, some do indeed like it hot. They toil away in the deserts of Chad and in the rugged landscapes of Ethiopia. But some of us work in cooler environments in the deep, dark recesses of caves in South Africa. Tony Curtis was born in 1925, which was the same year that Raymond Dart described and named Australopithecus africanus from Taung, the Taung child in South Africa. It was also the same year that two well-known paleoanthropologists were born, Clark Howell, and Philip Tobias. And it was Philip Tobias who gave the name Littlefoot to these first four foot bones that I found from the Stokefontein Caves in 1994. And he called it Littlefoot to contrast it jokingly with the legendary Bigfoot. This is not Bigfoot here. Uh, this is uh, a very good reconstruction, I think, that was done by the artist Wandel in the 1950s. And interestingly, you'll see that he's depicted the foot as having a slightly divergent big toe. Now, at that stage, there was no foot available. And when I discovered these uh, four bones that joined together, leading from the ankle down to the big toe, I realized that they showed that it had a slight mobility of the big toe, and so I made this model of the foot, and there you can see the gap between the big toe and the other toes. Anyway, we'll talk more about that later. But this was to lead to a big find, the complete or almost complete skeleton of an Australopithecus. And here you can see the skull still in the rock after we'd partially excavated it. The sites I'm going to be talking about are Taung, where the Taung child came from in, 1925, in 1924, Sturkfontein, where Dr. Robert Broom discovered the very first adult Australopithecus in 1936, and Makapaz Hut, where Raymond Dart's team of Alan Hughes and the Kitching brothers uncovered more Australopithecus fossils beginning in 1948. Stirkfontein uh, today looks like this. This is the excavation site. 
It's situated in these dolomitic limestone hills which are peppered with caves. Here you see another cave site, Swartkrans, famous for the Paranthropus fossils that were found there first in 1948, but I'm not going to be talking about those. I'm going to be concentrating on the Australopithecus fossils found here in the Sturkfontein caverns. What you see exposed on the surface now is the cave infill. The roof of the cavern has long since weathered away. But the caves extend down for more than 25 meters of deposits. And that is what we'll be looking at. Three million years ago, the Sturkfontein region was very different. We know from fossil wood that we found in the deposits, um, including fossil lianas that belong to a species that now only grows in tropical forest in western central Africa. We know that Sturkfontein was forested. And we know that it was inhabited by a large variety of monkeys, large monkeys such as this colobus. There were saber-toothed cats like Dinophilus, the false saber-tooth. And here we have another saber-tooth, Megantherian. There were long-legged hunting hyenas, which we call Chasmoporthetes. There were a variety of bovids, including this one, or something similar to this one that we call Makapania. This is actually a related form that lives in the foothills of the Himalayas. It's called the Takin or Bedorcus, um, and it lives in woodland in the foothills of the Himalayas. And then, of course, there was Australopithecus itself. Now, at that time, Littlefoot, the Australopithecus, fell into the cave, fell down a deep vertical shaft about 25 meters. We don't know how. We don't know whether like Winnie the Pooh, he trod on a piece of the forest that had been left out by mistake and fell in. We don't know whether uh, he was attacked by one of those big cats and both of them fell in together. Or we don't know whether he was thrown in by Australopithecine gangsters. <laughs> but whatever, he ended up on a debris pile 25 meters down at the bottom of the shaft. And this is what he must have looked like when he eventually came to rest. The legs were crossed, the left arm was above his head, and the fist was clenched. And we know that from the distribution of the fossil bones that we've uncovered. And then, a million years later, some of this deposit in which he was buried collapsed into cavities. And this was part of a general collapse that took place in the central area of the Sturkfontein Caves. And the gaps that were formed were then filled by this stalagmite, this flowstone or stalagmite. Now, for those who, uh, this, this is a section through the deposits, but for those who prefer a three-dimensional model, I made this very sophisticated model uh, I took some wheat bix breakfast cereal, to represent the breccia and put some peanuts on top to represent the uh, skeleton. 
and, and made the wheat bix collapse and then filled it up with yogurt to represent the stalagmite. And here you have uh, Goofy representing the puzzled excavator trying to work it all out. And there are indeed some Goofy people who've dated this stalagmite to around two million years and they've assumed that that is the date of Littlefoot. It is not, of course. That is the date when the stalagmite filled the cavities. We know that these, this collapse took place after the deposition of the skeleton and it is my belief it took place a million years after. Now, two million years after that date, a town was growing up not far away that was eventually to become known as Johannesburg. This was a mining town, and into that mining town came this gentleman, Guillermo Martinalia. He went out to Sturkfontein where he began exploiting the stalagmite in the caves. He began blasting it out, um, stalagmite similar to this one, which was removed from deep down in the Sturkfontein cave, and it's left an impression against the ancient cave infill, the breccia. So we have the skin of the stalagmite still adhering to this, uh, this breccia, and we have the impression of the stalagmite itself. And some of the breccia, after it was blasted, uh, collapsed onto the floor below. Now this mining activity went on uh, from the end of the 19th century, when Martinalia started, right up until 1939. But the time when this particular cave was being blasted out was probably the late 1920s or early 1930s. And the, the stalagmite was burnt in lime kilns like this to produce quicklime. Here is one of these lime kilns still preserved at Sturkfontein. And it was this lime mining activity that brought the Scots doctor and paleontologist Robert Broom to Sturkfontein on the 9th of August, 1936. He was taken there by two of Raymond Dart's students, uh, Harding LaRiche and GWH Skippers, because they had found fossil monkeys there that had been blasted out by the lime miners. So Broom went with them and he asked the quarry manager Mr. Barlow, seen here, if he'd ever found anything like the Taong child. He said he thought he had, and on Broom's third visit to the site, he handed to him this brain cast, or infilling of the brain case of what was clearly something akin to an ape. Uh, or at least that's what Broom thought at the time. It was about the size of a, uh, of a large ape. So um, Broom looked around on the rubble and he found the rest of the skull very crushed, including the teeth, and it was clear from the teeth that this was a hominid. These were human-like teeth, although much larger than a modern human. And this was the very first adult Australopithecus, found on the 17th of August, 1936. Interestingly, this tooth here and this one here um, I discovered from the lime miners' rubble dump 66 years after Broom had found the first one. And in 1938, Broom 
was working at a nearby site called Crom Dry, where he found a different kind of ape man that he called Paranthropus robustus. It had a flat face and very large teeth. And uh, he wrote at that time, if I live another eight years, I may, may be able to do a little more. I think it is very likely that within the next couple of years, we shall find other specimens of Pleistocene apes. You see, they called them apes in those days. Pleistocene apes, and perhaps much of his skeleton. If we could find a pelvis, a foot, and a hand of either the Sturkfontein or Cromdry ape, the importance of the discovery would be greater than all the previous discoveries put together. He knew it would be important because this would show that it was on the human line. It was an ape developing into a human. But unfortunately, he, although he did live another eight years and he did find the pelvis, he never did find a hand or a foot. It was going to be another 60 years before that was discovered. Meanwhile, uh, many other skulls were found and fragments of skulls, um, including some rather nice ones like this lower face and mandible. And there were fragments of skeleton. Uh, this is how we find a lot of the fragments, very broken up. And within these fragments, we can select pieces that we can identify as hominid. And here's one, a radius shaft. And here are some fragments that I've put together to make this cranium. Uh, there are also two partial skeletons. Uh, this one that was found in 1947 with the pelvis, much to Broom's delight. And here is another one that was found uh, long after Broom's death. In 1978, miner's rubble such as this was removed from this very deep shaft, which we call the Silverberg Grotto, in Sturkfontein Caves. It was taken to the surface, and the uh, fossils were developed out of it. They were cleaned out of the rocks and put into bags and boxes. And one day in 1994, I was looking through uh, one of these boxes when I found this ankle bone that I recognized as being an Australopithecus ankle bone. And this was quite astonishing because there were no other fossils, not even a single tooth or tooth fragment um, of an Australopithecus from that particular part of the cave. And then I found more there was the ankle bone, then I found among these uh, the other bones that fitted in front of it leading down to the big toe. And what was important about it, as I said, was that it showed it had this slightly divergent big toe. Now at the time, I and Philip Tobias published this, um, and Owen Lovejoy was very skeptical and, and said we were, this was uh, patently absurd to say it had a divergent big toe. But now with Ardipithecus, uh, he's found that that has an even more divergent big toe. Then in 1997, uh, I found more of the same foot, several more foot bones, and the lower part of a tibia, a shin bone. Not only uh, here they are put together, and compared to the same region in a modern human foot and lower leg. Not only that, but I found a piece of tibia from the other side and part of the other 
uh, a part of another foot bone from the other side. So I had the lower legs and the feet from the left and the right side. And I said, if that's the case, the rest of the skeleton must be down there in the cave. So I gave this piece of tibia to my two assistants, Stephen Motsumi and Nkwani Malefi, and said, go into the cave with torches and see if you can find anywhere that that will fit on. After one and a half days of searching, they found the spot. There's the piece in his hand and there's where it fits on. So we began excavating. There's the slope on which it was found, just in this spot here. We began excavating and we uncovered the lower legs up to the knee joints here and we uncovered the lower thigh bones. Uh, this is the radius of a monkey lying next to it. And when we got up to here, there was no more. And we carried on and we carried on up the slope and didn't find any more and we were in a state of despair. And we said, how can this be? You cannot have two lower legs side by side and not the rest of the skeleton. And obviously we couldn't make, we couldn't make this public. We worked in, in um, secrecy. We didn't want to make this public and make fools of ourselves by saying we'd got a complete skeleton um, <laughs> when we'd only got the lower legs. So we kept looking and we kept chiseling away month after month in this solid rock. This is solid, very, very hard rock. And, uh, and then I realized that there was a cavity beneath this skeleton. And I remembered the saying of Sherlock Holmes who said, when you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. And the impossible was that there could not be any more of the skeleton. That was impossible. It was unthinkable. It had to be there. So the improbable was that it was situated beneath a thick layer of stalagmite. We chiseled through that stalagmite and we got the rest of the skeleton. Firstly, the skull. And these are the stages in revealing the skull. The back of the mandible here and part of the cheekbone. Uh, and next to it was the upper arm bone, the humerus. Here's a bit more cleaning and a bit more. And then, then we got this and, and then this is the final stage of the cleaning. A complete skull with the jaw in articulation and the humerus next to it. We continued up the slope. And to our delight, we got the arm and the hand. Here's my hand next to it for comparison, uh, showing you how the fingers are curled across the palm. This hand, uh, I think I'll show it. Yes, I've got another picture later. But here is the arm. And this is how we go about cleaning away the rock with this air scribe, a pneumatically driven needle that slowly cleans away the rock. And this is a scan of the arm and the hand. And here is a, a close-up of the hand. Now this is very important, particularly after what we've just heard about um, Ardipithecus, uh, because this hand is like ours. It is not like that of an ape. It has a long it has long fingers um, relative to the palm. It has a short palm. It has longer fingers, and it has a long thumb. 
Um, so the proportions of the fingers, palm, and hand are like ours and not like those of an ape, which has a short thumb, long palm, and very long fingers. And right there in the middle is the distal end of the thumb, the thumb bone, which is unlike any thumb bone of either a human or an ape. It's more like a big toe bone, more like the distal end of a big toe. Why, I don't know, but it's very strange. This is how we excavate, lying on the slope, wearing dust masks, and here we have a compressor. Uh, compressed air drives this uh, little uh, air scribe, pneumatically driven needle that cleans away the rock. This shows the layout of the skeleton, the arm up here, the skull, the upper arm, the leg bones over there, and there are ribs and vertebrae and pelvis. And here we have the skull and the humerus, and admiring it, this beautiful lady, Miss South Africa, Nicole Flint. I love my job. Um, yeah, reminds me of the Gary Larson cartoon, an anthropologist's dream. A hominid skull in one hand and a beautiful woman in the other. Now, what species does it belong to? Naturally, one thinks of Australopithecus africanus, represented here by the Taong child, but it's not that. It differs from that. We have a, a fairly big sample of Australopithecus africanus fossils uh, that can be separated into males like this one. It has the same, same profile in the adult as in the child. Uh, there's another male, part of a face, and here's the lower face of a female. So we can see males and females in Australopithecus africanus, but there is what I consider to be a second species of Australopithecus at Sturkfontein, uh, which has a much flatter face and larger, more bulbous teeth. And here is one of them. This is one of these uh, specimens of the second species from Sturtfontein that I've reconstructed from these fragments. And here you can see the comparison between Australopithecus africanus with its more projecting muzzle and um, the second species. And I'll come back to that in a while. Here is a comparison of the dentition. Here is an Australopithecus africanus and here is the second species that has these larger, more bulbous, bulbous cusped teeth. It also has a flatter and longer palate. In 1948, Dart named at Makapan's hut um, a new species. He called it Australopithecus prometheus. He thought it was different from the fossils that had been found at Sturkfontein. And indeed, he was correct. The first specimen he found, I haven't got a picture of it here, but the first specimen he found was the back of a brain case that he, he thought differed from the ones from Sturkfontein. And the second specimen was this child jaw, which you'll note has these large, bulbous, cusped molars and premolars. He called it Australopithecus prometheus because he thought it was associated with burnt bones. And in Greek mythology, 
Prometheus took fire from the gods, uh, from the blacksmith to the gods, and gave it to humans. And so uh, Dart named it Prometheus. We now know that the, what he thought was burnt bone uh, was in fact manganese-stained bone. The manganese comes out of the dolomitic uh, limestone rock and stains the bones. Uh, so there were no burnt bones at Machapan's hut. But Prometheus is a good name. And I want to resurrect this name. It hasn't been in use for many years, but it's still valid uh, because it has been used in the scientific literature in the past 50 years, and I believe Dart was correct in assigning that spe species name to the first specimens from Makapan's hut. Not to all of them, because later there were some other specimens from that site which turned out to be real Australopithecus africanus. So just as at Sturkfontein, there were two species at Makapan's hut. And I believe that Littlefoot belongs to that species, Australopithecus prometheus. If you separate out the, uh, the humerus here from the skull and bring down the crushed face, because it's been crushed backwards and upwards, if that is brought downwards and forwards, this is what it looks like. And it is remarkably similar to a drawn reconstruction I did several years ago of this second species. And all of them have in common uh, these features, a thin supraorbital margin and an incipient supraglobella depression, a flatness or hollowness here. They also have an anteriorly situated cheekbone. They have large cheek teeth but also large canines and large projecting incisors. They have a relatively thin body to the mandible, which is strange in view of the massiveness of the teeth. They have thin, uh, thin mandibles. They have a more vertical occipital region, and they are wide across the parietal bosses. Now, Interestingly, Dart's name Prometheus is rather appropriate for this skeleton of Littlefoot. Because notice the way he's lying on the slope, and notice the way, I don't know if you can make it out here, but here is a, an old Etruscan bronze box depicting Prometheus, who was chained to the rocks by Zeus uh, because he gave fire to humans. So he was chained to the rocks, and here he's got his left arm above his head, just like Littlefoot. He's got his legs crossed, just like Littlefoot. And he's being released from the rocks by Hercules. <laughs> now I want, to, I want to pay acknowledgement to my two assistants here, uh, Stephen Motsumi um, and Arbel Molopoli, for their Herculean efforts in releasing Littlefoot from the rock. We've now taken him up to the surface, or at least part of him, part of him is still down there, uh, but we've taken this up so it can be cleaned in the laboratory and properly reconstructed. And uh, finally, I'd just like to thank 
the people who over the years have given us a lot of support at Sturtfontein, and I'd like to thank the organizers of this symposium for their kindness inviting me and all the other speakers as well to come and present you with our research. Thank you very much.